Hello, everybody. It's FAA Safety Briefing Live for the March and April edition. I'm Paul Prydecker, and of course, joined by Susan Parson. Hello, Susan. Hi, Paul. How's it going? All good. I'm glad to hear that. We have a good issue this time called main, or meet the maintainers. And of course, um, it's an appropriate issue since people who deal with maintenance not only help us with our cars and our airplanes and everything with cylinders, but also with the air conditioning systems in Phoenix, <laughs> Arizona. <laughs> yeah, and that was part of the fun of today. Um, it's always something, but at least it's not triple digits yet. Well, not inside, so right. yeah. Not outside either. Yeah, so welcome everybody. It's good to be back with you. Um, yeah, Safety Briefing is the safety policy voice for non-commercial general aviation. Um, all of our departments, our regular departments, have a specific purpose that we try to maintain um, discipline on, like um, like any good aviator would. And then we have goals for the magazine, which are here, raise awareness of FA resources, explain safety and regulatory issues, and above all, to encourage continued training as we want everybody in aviation to do all the time. And so much of this issue is devoted to the training opportunities for AMTs and everybody that we entrust our uh, well-being to. And um, one of the articles I saw had an uh, interesting little clip in it that said, um, pilots need mechanics more than mechanics need pilots. And that's very true. Uh, yeah, that's like so many things in aviation or in life in general. So um, this is just a summary of the features that are in this edition. Um, airframe and power plant superheroes, um, not just your average mechanic. Um, the Frankenstein's airplane, this is um, a term that we use sometimes to, uh, that some of us use whimsically, but to talk about a very serious issue that when you're modifying an airplane, you need to make sure all the pieces work together. Um, we have a piece on keeping the Civil Air Patrol fleet fit. I actually said that. Um, and then there's a, a common sense look at why some, not just mechanics, although the article is written to that point of view, are prone to bend the rules. And I think there's something to that all of us can learn. And then we have, uh, we have features in this issue about the Master Pilot and Master Mechanic Award winners. It's a big deal. 50 years that you have to have in order to meet those criteria. I was trying to do a little bit of math this morning. Um, Why? It, <laughs> that's right. It, it'll be a while. I, okay. I need to have a few more uh, flight reviews to do and, yeah. you know, to mm -hmm. get to the 50-year point. So, but I'll look forward to it. Um, first one is about Charles Taylor Master Mechanic Award, and he was quite an individual. And, of course, there's an award name for him. Well, yeah, the, the Master Mechanic Award, which is um, the Charles Taylor Award, is the companion to the Wright Brothers Award given to pilots. And I, I actually learned quite a bit about Charles E. Taylor from this, from, from doing research for the pieces in this magazine, um, that, you know, his, his one regret, as you see there, he always wanted to learn to fly, but he never did. And that's because the rights didn't teach him. They thought that mm -hmm. if he got a pilot certificate, he would be out doing exhibition flying and that they needed him where he was. And so they made sure that he stayed where he was. So that's good for us, but um, probably not so good for him. And the article gives information about what it takes, of course, to receive the Charles Taylor Master Mechanic Award. It's on the slide. 
certified mechanic or uh, repairman working on U.S. registered aircraft um, under you know the current rules and regs uh, for 30 of the 50 years required. So it's another 50-year award. And as I was reading this, it occurred to me that Charles Taylor was not just a mechanic, he was also an engineer, or he certainly thought like an engineer, because it mentioned that when he was designing an engine for the Wright brothers, he knew that they needed a uh, eight horsepower engine. They only had six and he designed one that was 12 by using aluminum block and I'm sure other weight saving things. So it's interesting to me that even in today's world, when we're talking about engines and aircraft, we talk about power to weight ratios. So it seems like he understood that early on and and helped get the first airplane. Well, he did. Going, and so. The interesting thing, too, is the mechanics always go above and beyond. Indeed. They needed eight, and he delivered, what, 12? 12. Okay. Yeah. And if you think about a 12-horsepower engine, uh, I suspect there's riding lawnmowers that have something like that. So, um, but for the day, it was quite a feat, and it's appropriate that um, the mechanic award should be named after him. It is indeed. Um, superheroes are really about another recognition for the AMTs. And um, I, I like this quote from Mike Dunkley that it's not just doing the work of a mechanic because you could do that on a car. You have to have a love of aircraft. And so many people do. You know, we, we love working on airplanes. We, we love the end result when we're just even cleaning them up. Um, and it's not quite the same as a car or a motorcycle, maybe, maybe a motorcycle, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it, the, there are some awards available, um, for, um, AMTs and they're all well-deserved. Well, what this article does is it interviews some award, uh, some winners of certain awards and tries to get some sense of them from them about what is special and unique about their jobs. And I think the Mike Dunkley quote, as you pointed out, mm -hmm. really captures that. But most of them said something along the lines of this is just the icing on the cake, that what you really care, what, what really matters is that you've spent this time and effort to really master the craft. Um, some of the awards are, are chosen by peers, which makes yes. it even more special. Um, and then we, we've got a reference in here to the William O'Brien or Bill O'Brien Awards Program to recognize excellence. And I had uh, I had the privilege of meeting Bill when oh. he was still at the FIA. Yep. Uh, retired. He was instrumental in establishing the Charles Taylor Master Mechanic Award um, back in 1991, and then now there's an awards program named for him, too. And the other award program, which is part of the General Aviation Awards, is the uh, General Aviation Technician, Technician of the Year. Technician of the Year. Mm -hmm. um, and that's um, one of three awards that are uh, issued every year to the general aviation audience. Um, we have a just a slide about some of the the role of honor for both the the Wright Brothers Master Pilot Award and also for the Master Mechanic Award. I would encourage you to just take a moment, look through these, and if you see anybody you recognize, reach out to them, oh, give yeah. them a call, say congratulations. I from Wisconsin, I saw one or two people that I that I actually recognize and haven't seen in years, but I'm not surprised that you know they've. Um, mastered this so to speak <laughs> well um also this is these are just screenshots of a couple of pages these actually do go on for several pages um because 
um, a surprising number, with me just surprising, number of people actually meet these criteria. But like you, Paul, I got a few years to go before <laughs> I would qualify. So I guess we just have to keep working at it, right? Keep flying and keep on, keep on learning, right? Absolutely. Um, this is a nice article, not, not your average mechanic. And it goes into a lot of the details about what day in the life of an AMT is. The, um, especially the development of technology, it's, it's not just about wrenches anymore. A lot of it is about computers and technology. Um, it reminds me of my, my motorcycle, it's a 2014, and I remember the first time I took it in for service, uh, the first thing the service tech did was he hooked it up to a computer and he said, oh, we've got a software download for you. So <laughs> we're just going to plug it into the USB right. port on my motorcycle. And right. I honestly didn't know I had one, there you go. but that's how the service thing started was with a you know software update to the, to the bike. Um, but this covers a lot of information about the technology and also about um, the rigorous training program. Yeah, it's uh, the 1,900-hour training and certification process, plus, uh, as with pilots, there's there's recurrent training. Um, as Paul pointed out, using the laptop as much as a wrench nowadays. Um, the, the, the fact of the matter is, for pilots, yeah, there are lots of different airplanes and, and uh, systems, avionics to learn. But when you think about the range of airplanes um, and size and shape and speed and composition, there are so many things that we just expect mechanics to know. And that's why it says an AMT is a jack of all trades. Um, and those who really enjoy this kind of work, a new challenge and a new opportunity. Um, in that regard, we um, the FAA is doing a, a, a symposium later this month on STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And I keep trying to put an A in there for arts yes. as well. I had to say that. But, but one of the reasons that we do this is that uh, the demand for not just pilots, but certainly for AMTs is growing. And as it says here, the FAA awarded $5 million in aviation workforce grants to train the next generation of AMTs. The thing is, AMTs often can... They have the, the fundamental skills to go work in other industries, but we very much need them to focus and just to come into aviation and stay in aviation. Well, and you, you began to touch on something that I was thinking about too, and that is, I would say as, as pilots, most of us might fly the same type of aircraft. I mean, maybe there's a different version of it on the line. Maybe there's a, you know, 172 with, analog gauges, maybe there's a 172 with a full electronic panel. Um, maybe we've, you know, we have checked out in the 182. So we, we have a few choices. But in general, if you look in our logbooks, we're flying a lot of the same type of aircraft. However, when you pull into a maintenance shop, the, the mechanic, the AMT, has to know and understand so many things about a huge variety, even, even in the airlines. I mean, as an airline person, I flew one airplane, but I'm sure that the maintenance people who were in charge of that fleet also knew all the other fleets as well. It's, it's quite an undertaking. Um, and when I looked at the requirements, I thought, um, you know, there's the basic requirements to get started, but then there's all the recurrent training that's required. Oh, yeah. And the other part I learned in this was um, about, you know, some of the new technology. 
I had actually saw a presentation a few years ago at an aviation conference. Um, essentially, it was about virtual reality. Oh, I remember that, yes. But it was applied, yeah. first of all, it was applied to virtual reality by looking at the uh, right. example of a flight deck. But they also had the image of a jet engine yep. projected in space. And with your goggles, you could actually walk into the engine right. and see all the working parts. It was quite remarkable. And I'm sure that that technology has also increased. And also, let's not forget drones, because mm. uh, there was an article in there that one of the popular carriers um, uses drones to do external inspections, mm -hmm. and they can save time doing that. So it's another application for drones, and it's an example of how technology is growing, not just on the pilot side, but especially for the mechanics. Another skill for mechanics to learn. And I, Yes, and I happen to look on the FAA website just to see, get a handle on this. There's about 330,000 certificated AMTs or repair people. Big numbers, and we still need more. And we still need more. Sure. So this is... It's a more detailed look yeah. at what is required if you think that you might want to be um, to be a mechanic, knowing options and requirements. Um, this article was written by the sole member of our staff who happens to have an airframe and power plant certificate. Is that um, Tom, 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 Tom Hoffman? Hoffman. Mm -hmm. um, so he has written quite a few pieces. Actually, that's one of the reasons he, he contributed a great deal of content to this particular issue. Um, he could explain that the airframe rating and the power plant rating. So you get the mechanic certificate and the A&P is for airframe and, and power plant. But, um, you know, pilots pass exams, but for A&P, three separate written, oral, and practical exams. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a ton of stuff that you have to do. And some can get it through experience. Right. Um, but the most common route is to um, get it in a, in a AMT school or a Part 147. Part 147 AMT school, yeah. Yeah. And repairman certificate is also an option, but it's a little bit more restrictive in what you can and cannot do. Yeah, and that's something I think people need to, uh, we, we didn't try to get into it in great detail on this particular issue, but um, if you have or want to get a repairman certificate or actually any certificate of rating, it always pays to go look at the rules, read the regulations and find out exactly what it is that you're required to do. I used to have, I know you're going to be shocked, a spreadsheet <laughs> with all of the requirements that I had to meet to get a given certificate. And every flight, I would come back and add something to my little spreadsheet that would say I was that two hours closer to where I wanted to be or two flights or two cross countries or whatever it happened to be. I'm, I'm not actually shocked. I mean, no, I didn't you're think you'd be. Queen of spreadsheets. spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At least we're tracking things. It helps. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed this one because it reminded me of a um, something that a friend of mine told me, and that is, and I'm sure some of you can relate to this, your, your life is exponentially complicated by the number of cylinders in it. Really? And, yes. Okay. And when I think about the uh, Civil Air Patrol fleet, yeah, that's a lot. a lot of cylinders. It's a lot of cylinders. And you've been a Civil Air Patrol person, and I, you might be familiar I with am, some of this. Um, yeah, I was I was quite active in the Virginia wing when I lived there. Um, and these days I am officially attached to the national staff for whatever they might need. 
but uh, yeah, 190 Skyhawks. I mostly what I saw were in Virginia were the 182 Skylanes, but here mm -hmm. in Arizona, turbos are popular. Sure. For obvious reasons, stationers, um, the air vans, malls, um, the two hot air balloons, integrity and imagination are fun. Um, gliders, I used to go know people who towed gliders. Um, and now the Civil Air Patrol has gotten into drones for a lot of operational missions as well. So it's for search and rescue, you can imagine. Um, and the numbers are big. It's um, they, they use, uh, I think it says 938 for operational and another almost 1400 just for education and, and STEM purposes. Well, and during the years that I've been involved in the Civil Air, Air Patrol, I have seen the maintenance function evolve in the direction it's very highly structured now I, I think it was more dispersed when i first started but as computer technology and systems got to be better um everybody now documents tracks and reports on a web-based system that you have and you can automatically notify one of the aircraft maintenance officers for validation so you know you can have your your cell phone or tablet right there enter the discrepancy and that signifies that the airplane is grounded. So you're you're mm -hmm. letting everybody know that it's not mission capable. And anybody who's coming out to practice flying knows that, oops, can't take that one. So you're not relying on back in the day, you know, where you'd tear out a scrap of paper and clip it <laughs> to the yoke and say aircraft grounded. Uh, and somebody would have to, you know, figure out why. So the consolidated program, safer, airworthy, mission ready, and they certainly are nice looking airplanes. They certainly are. I've seen actually quite a few around here in, yeah. in the Phoenix, Scottsdale area. Yeah. Um, the, the idea of being able to do write-ups electronically and That's have all right. that information is great. Um, in my former 121 experience, we had to handwrite all of our discrepancies into a log. Oh and then read those to oh. the maintenance controller at headquarters who would then hand type it into the official system. Um, so a, a lot of it was just get out the pen and start writing things down. Did you have now, to read it because the pilot's handwriting is like a doctor's? It was hard to read. Pretty bad sometimes. Yeah. Um, but in, you know, in, in terms of write-ups too, and I'm sure the maintenance people who are on this might appreciate this, when when you are making a write-up, whether it's electronic or written, um, it's really helpful to the maintenance personnel to provide details about what's going on, the flight conditions, and be fairly specific about what the problem is. Um, our maintenance people at the 121 facility used to say the worst write-ups that they would get would be a pilot would say, radio one doesn't work. Well, that doesn't say whether it's the display, does it not receive, does it not transmit? Uh, what does it mean when it says it doesn't work? There's lots of possibilities. Um, or airplane vibrates. <laughs> well, mm, might be vibrating while you're taxiing. Is it vibrating in flight? So it's just a it's just a word of advice that, you know, when you're trying to make the most of um, working with your maintenance personnel, be really clear and go so far as to put in flight conditions if it's appropriate. Well, and if you're paying for it yourself, um, it could also save you a lot of money. Sure. If you can shortcut some of the troubleshooting that the maintenance technician would otherwise have to do. Yeah, even as simple as a mag check. I mean, oh, yeah. Which, which one? So, um, 
this is your article and it's about making the most of maintenance and there's uh, i'm sure there's a story of course yeah um this was uh and the story is in in more detail in the actual article um many years ago our club owned two airplanes a 182 which is still the club has and a 150 which was a lot of fun to go just bore holes in the sky but uh, one it turned out that the there was a glitch in um in tracking when the annual was due and unfortunately um when it was overdue for annual which meant that it had to be done on the field which was an expensive facility and we ended up with like a seven thousand dollar annual inspection which um would make anybody choke but one of the things that we learned is that we were get we had been getting a i put in almost put in quotes there a really good deal from a facility that may have been cutting some corners um so the lessons that we learned were, first of all, be wary of a really good deal because it might not be as good as you think it is, um, but fly the airplane. And we ended up selling that airplane uh, to somebody who would actually fly it because we didn't have enough people who flew the 150 on a regular basis to keep it happy. Mm -hmm. And so um, it, it had about 20 hours one year and we said, no, oh. we, that's, that's sad. And I'm very happy to know, well, last time I saw the airplane, it was with a, a new owner somewhere in Delaware and it was quite happily flying around like it's supposed to. Another is pay attention. Um, don't relax and assume that everything is well without doing things like obviously your pre-flight inspection. Um, I've heard lots of techniques for making sure that you do it like going backwards um, instead of, you know, just do something to make sure that you're really looking at everything and use all your senses. I used to say, does it look right, smell right, feel right, sound mm -hmm. right? And if it doesn't, find out why. Um, in every phase of flight, pay attention. Keeping a log of indicators will help you know what is normal and what's not. And then um, I think most of us, I raise my own hand, I've been guilty of not doing anything significant in the way of post-flight inspection, but it's a great opportunity to make sure you're getting information and that if something has gone wrong, you can get it fixed before you or somebody sure. else wants to go fly again. We, we just talked about mag checks. I, I made it a habit to do a mag check on the way in after a flight. Oh, that's good. Um, simply for that reason, if there was a problem, I could um, give the facility a chance to, you know, fix it before the somebody else may want to take that plane. Uh, there's a couple of other things embedded in this that are just interesting, and that is if you are an airplane owner, um, you get really comfortable with it. Yep. And what I've noticed in a lot of things about comfort is complacency usually follows, which means you you're the one flying the airplane, you know it well, um, you're the only one that is in the hangar with it. Um, doesn't mean that attention to detail is still not required because you just never quite know. So I, myself, and I work, I'll raise my hand too. It's it's easy to to make make some assumptions. Mm -hmm. And as I've often said in all presentations like this, as well as just guidance for instructors, it's always better to assess than assume. Oh, that's a good phrase. So I'm going to borrow that. I feel free. No charge. <laughs> Thanks. But I think everybody understands what that's about. Is we put the we think we put the plane away a plane away in good shape. Therefore, tomorrow morning it's going to be fine. But the 
diligence and the attitude to let's just do everything the right way all the time is a good way to be. Um, and you're right, post-flight inspections are just as important. Um, and the other thing too, of course, is that when an airplane is released for maintenance, um, I always made it a habit to go fly it, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily launch off on a, you know, three hour cross country unless Stay I Stay close to the runway. Just stayed in a little bit, just, right. just to check things. I mean, it's just a little common sense and the extra 10 or 15 minutes might, might save some time. So, so this is a slightly off subject, but it's relevant, especially for this time of the year, birds. It is amazing oh, how yeah. quickly birds can build nests. And if you're not, some of them are pretty obvious, but some of them are not. And I'm particularly aware of that because a couple of doves were trying desperately to make a nest in my patio ceiling fans. <laughs> um, they've been stopped, but I've, I found nests in engines. Uh, so look, oh, sure. look carefully, particularly this time of the year so that you don't uh, fry the eggs and cause a fire from the nest. And I noticed, I don't know if you did this on purpose or if it just came out, but on, on the third book, one, two, three, third bullet, you say pre-flight inspection. It reminds me that many years ago in our flight crew manual, um, in the early part of the manual where we were talking about doing inspection, we called it a walk around. Ah. And that's, I mean, that's what we do, right? We do a walk around. Um, but after watching people do that, I thought, I think I'm going to change this to pre-flight inspection. I mean, mm -hmm. you can walk around, but the task is to do an inspection. Well, I was taught to inspect, but I wasn't allowed to say that looks okay. I had to identify the part and say what was good or what was not good yeah. specifically. So use words. Uh, this one is timing is everything. And it's another little acronym or um, well, a mnemonic. Yeah, well, this was another of the um, of the articles that was inspired by a book I happened to be reading at the time I was reading it. It was it's uh, you can find the, the title of it if you're interested in the article. But essentially, um, it timing really does govern so much for safe and legal operations, especially the legal part, um, but the, clearly the safe part as well. And we need to be mindful of those inspections. I just told a story in the previous um, article about how my club lost track of when the annual inspection was due and it turned out to be very costly. Fortunately, it was only money. It didn't cost <laughs> anybody yeah. anything else. So it was an expensive lesson, but we, we did take it to heart. Um, but I always thought this mnemonic was fun because it helped me remember um, what was required in the annual inspection VOR check under certain um, circumstances. The I is actually a one for 100 hour, then altimeter and static system, transponder and ELT. Um, so each one is the how, with also with the how often and the reference. Um, but the article also points out that um, just as humans have devoted considerable time and resources to evaluating age-related issues for <laughs> our bodies, yes, um, the FAA and, and has worked with the industry to evaluate a lot of age-related issues with airplanes. And the fact that you might have a newer airplane doesn't mean that aging is not still an issue. This is not a, I, I found this point in researching for this article. 
Um, you know, newer airplanes, composite airplanes, may have different life cycles than sure. those two. So, and it, and also where the airplane is flown. I mean, that's a that's a huge thing. The article references um, if you're in a coastal environment, that brings uh, salt water corrosion issues. Uh, if you're parked one out on the ramp in Arizona, um, the heat and what it can do is significant. Um, so it it really and all of this is up to us then to be able to we're we're sort of the last line of defense to be able to check this and make sure we're still legal and it's awfully important that we do that um because i yes there's there's a legal aspect but the most important part is the safety yeah um so this is kind of fun uh, the, the article addresses a couple of um accident events which illustrate the purpose of this and it's mainly if you've got some stcs and there's multiple be careful yeah um years ago i i, I think not everybody appreciated the humor of this but there was a um the, the concept of the frankenplane i started using because uh, along with another person i'd been asked to evaluate an airplane that just had a uh, it had been modified extensively and not everything played nice together. Mm -hmm. And so I called it, I started calling it a Frankenplane because you could see the stitches and the bolts and the, I mean, figuratively, of course. Sure. But, but uh, it, what, what the article is really getting at, it's using a whimsical idea to make a very serious point and to get attention to the fact that um, if you're mixing up supplemental type certificates, um make sure that you and or and or your mechanic are aware that okay there there are multiple stcs here and some may as it puts it here lay the impact of layering um different um modifications to an airplane might not work quite the same way well that that's true and the other part too is um it addresses a little bit about um, for example, some aircraft under Part 121 and Part 135 operate with a minimum equipment list or an MEL. MELs are perfectly legal ways to defer items mm -hmm. for a certain time period, but some MELs don't play well together. And it's important that if you're in a situation with an aircraft that has several MELs, um, if there's any questions about their ability to play with each other, uh, requires some investigation either by you or by somebody in charge of maintenance. Um, the other derivation of the Frankenplane uh, is one that I've seen a lot is the Franken panel. Ah, yes. <laughs> um, I was going to mention that. For, you know, those of us who have given a lot of instruction, we might get into an airplane that's unfamiliar to us, and it's made even more so by what's in the panel. Um, it may not be a standard six-pack. It may be something completely different. And things that you're used to seeing may be in different places. And from an instructor standpoint, um, it really is a good idea to just take a moment and sit there and just do a really a familiarization of what's going on here. Um, and I'm sure from a, the AMT's world, um, the concept of a Franken panel appears when they uh, are looking at the back of everything oh, yeah. and all of the wiring to know re what's really there. So as you said, it, it pays to make sure that there's no interactions that 
um, might turn into something that's unsafe. Again, STCs are perfectly legal, but it starts becoming a mess if they don't play well. Well, and that is also true with different instruments. Well, you know, theoretically, uh, STC should be involved in some way. But um, if you're a pilot, I, I remember going out um, a while back with a gentleman who had just upgraded his airplane and he couldn't understand or he was having trouble trying to get some of the newer equipment to work the way that, quote unquote, it was supposed to. And we, we pretty quickly established that there was a consistent thing that it did. And yes, it was not what was in the book, but it was because the newer, I think it was a newer navigation radio didn't play nicely with the older autopilot. And finally, I just said, look, it's not about what you want it to do or what you think it's supposed to do. Let's talk, let's just set the baseline for what it can do mm -hmm. and make sure that you're operating to that. So. The Franken-Plane concept, I think we're seeing it a lot uh, sure. on the pilot side as well as on the mechanic side nowadays. And the point is um, just be sure that all of the toys know how to play together. In the sandbox. Nicely. Um, our drone column, uh, we'll see a drone column all the time in, in here yep. because of the there are a lot really, of really a large proliferation of drones. Um, we just, I think in a previous issue or maybe a previous broadcast, we talked about how drones were used to inspect um, power lines. Uh, I know a gentleman who put together a drone program for his railroad who um, would do inspections that way. We just talked about the fact that drones can be used in search and rescue um, with CAP, but also to inspect the um, outside frame of a large aircraft, all kinds of applications for drones. and who's going to maintain them, but of course the person responsible, the remote, the, the, the remote pilot in command. Yeah, I, this is, I, I think this uh, author was the first time, uh, this is the first time I'd seen that particular abbreviation, the small mm -hmm. R and PIC, but it, it, it kind of made sense to me. Um, but yeah, I, the idea that you're, you're not only the pilot, but you're also the maintainer, um, to some extent, that's true for all of us because it's always the responsibility of the PIC to make sure that the airplane is in sure. condition for safe operation. Um, it might be a little bit easier in some ways to for a non-mechanic to do that with a drone than with a, um, a traditional airplane. But on the other hand, we're all supposed to know something about how our machinery operates so that we can make sure that it's operating the way it's supposed to. And, and of course, make, because it's a remote operation, um, it's especially important to do all of this um, for obvious reasons. You don't want the drone to come down on some place that you didn't intend it to. No. But also, when, when we're in our own fixed wing um, or rotor wing aircraft and we're actually you know, taking part of the process of, fly, process of flying, we're able to see feel, hear, smell things as it happens. Whereas with the drone, we don't know that until it comes back or before it launches. So they give it uh, information about things to generally check over. It's a good review. And the other part was about the uh, maintenance and inspection program to have something mm -hmm. that is sort of like regularly scheduled. Well, and that kind of takes the place of, because 
right now there is not an aviate style inspection program for mm -hmm. drones so but that doesn't mean that you can't have one or that you shouldn't now i i thought that these tips here were all very helpful of course not everything applies to every kind of airplane you've got the general structural but battery powered mm -hmm. naturally aspirated etc so what what really matters is what you are flying and but but sitting sitting down with the manual and developing a this is the program for maintenance this is the program for inspection and following it is a is a great way to make sure that your craft is ready when you are absolutely um i want to perform maintenance um not another, something i would try another 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 article by uh, your colleague tom hoffman 31 items that you can do but it comes with a caveat is that we have to be careful that we understand what the word complex is mm -hmm. um and um, we have to document everything we do as well mm -hmm. um the documentation is the same as uh if uh, the certified mechanic were doing it what's been done a date um, signature, certificate, um, and certificate type all have to be recorded. Um, but uh, Appendix A of uh, Part 43 is what will you can you can uh, have a look to see what the items are. Um, the whole concept of complex is something that needs to be paid attention to. I had a 63 Chevy years ago, and um, I remember. You know, just doing what kids do, change the spark plugs, change the spark plug wires, <laughs> things like that. And it was always fun. Yeah. But a mechanic told me that the actual way that the spark plug wire should have run was um, through the engine blocks, which would have meant that the uh, engine actually should have been lifted up to run oh. to run those correctly. All right. I didn't do that. Yeah. That would have that would have fallen into the complex realm. Well, another thing about performing maintenance on your aircraft, and I, I got this from a, a friend who is a mechanic and pilot, performing uh, maintenance, there are obviously these benefits. It can save you time, open doors to a new level of understanding. But uh, my friend was a little bit dicey on the money part because even though, uh, if certainly for somebody who hasn't done this before, remember that the mechanic is still responsible for signing everything on. And if you, or a novice, and it takes more of the mechanic's time, sure. then that may not save you money, but uh, at least money in the sense of, of directly. But if you are getting a new level of understanding of your airplane that can help you later on, it's certainly something worth doing. So, Yeah, vertically speaking, it's our uh, rotocraft column, and this is really highlighting, um, first, some um, videos that are available. But mainly, we're talking about best practices for pre-flight and post-maintenance. And like so many things that we've talked about, many of these things, if not all of them, apply to a fixed-wing aircraft as well. And it, you know, there's things that are just commonly done that we need to do. Helicopters have their unique characteristics, of course, but all of these items are airplane-specific too. They are. Um, I, I really like things like the challenge yourself to find something wrong, assume that something is wrong and be on a mission to find it. Kind of like mm -hmm. the contests they do at air shows. Mm -hmm. um, use your checklist. Now, that's something when I, I always made my own checklist because it taught me how to do, I, I learned a lot and I could put in things that I might specifically um, forget. But I tried not to say check 
or verify. Sure. I tried to say specifically what it was about. Um, but these, these videos, um, they keep expanding all the time. There are a lot of great safety information in these, in these videos. And I think we talked about another one in the, in the last issue. We did. Um, FAA faces. Gary Maggs. Yeah, yeah, Gary, uh, you may have seen him if you've been to Oshkosh. Um, he, um, he kind of, um, helps run the FAA safety center at, uh, at Oshkosh. And he's always up in the booth checking on things and making sure that the presenters get the opportunity to be as smooth as possible. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's so true about so many people in aviation where you, you sort of think, well, gosh, I didn't think I could do that or I never was interested or I didn't know anybody who did it. And then suddenly somebody comes along who lights the spark and lets you know that this was possible, that this is interesting. And it turned into a whole career. And I mean, he's a fast team rep and obviously he's involved in outreach to the GA community. Yes. Um, so many things about education. And as you just said, um, let people know what's possible. Well, and he's he's a mentor for new program managers. Um, and I, I liked his advice, do your best. Our goal is to do everything that we can do to make sure that the aircraft is mechanically safe. Exactly. So good stuff. Um, Dr. Susan Northrup's column on um, uh, aeromedical factors. And this one is really about, we, we all think of AMEs as well, okay, we get our, we need our medical from them. We go every six, 12, two years, whatever. But this is also about uh, providing aviation medical services for mechanics and also about education, human factors education, especially, and um, an entire, again, video training series that can be available to help educate mechanics about these, these same things. Yeah, and you, you were talking about augmented reality before, and this has an actual picture. It talks about to explore the use of technologies exactly like that so that you can do work instruction, safety critical information, and that's all part of the research. I mean, that goes that that is relevant to the sort of research that the Civil Aerospace Medical Institute does to identify and mitigate areas of safety risk with maintenance. And when you're doing it with just a a visor strapped around your yeah. head. And I, I was at the same presentation and I remember just being amazed that people were walking around in what looked like an engine and they were actually <laughs> moving things. And I, I, the, I can't even imagine how much computing power that required. Well, and everything that's associated with teaching human factors, whether it's on the pilot side or the maintenance side or the dispatch side is all about risk mitigation. And that's, right. and that's, that's the ultimate goal, right? Absolutely. Um, the other medical article we have here is about fatigue and yes. boy, haven't we all been there? Yes. Well, um, I, I sort of like the picture here, the pouring tea and actually pour it or coffee more like mm -hmm. it pouring it, um, beside the cup instead of in it. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of information in this article about fatigue as both chronic and acute. Um, but but one of the, the big things here that, that keeps coming back to me is we're poor judges of our own fatigue level. You sure. might think you're tired, but it is like hypoxia in that it messes up your ability to really recognize that, hey, this is what my problem is and here's what I need to do. 
So here's where the input from family, friends, people who know you and can say, hey, wait, you know, are you really are you really ready to do this? Well, and the sort of incipient nature of it is that you think you're doing okay, but you're you're not, you're not. necessarily. It builds up over time. Um, as much as we think that the cup of coffee and a shot of caffeine will help, uh, it doesn't really. And I think about the, I think about the maintenance facilities I've seen that are that are truly 24-hour operations. So now we have varying work schedules. Um, perhaps they're uh, swing shifts, uh, adjusting to the other side of the clock, just as you know pilots do. Um, uh, with international flying or with cargo operations, you have to get used to adjusting to that. Um, when I taught um, the first airplane that I taught in the um, 121 world was that um, it was a nice aircraft. It was a Dornier 328 turboprop. Oh, wow. Um, but there were no simulators for it <laughs> uh, because I think the total output from Dornier was 125 airplanes and half of them were in Europe and the other half were in the States. So, <clears throat> the availability of simulators was restricted, which meant we did all of our training in the middle of the night because during the day, the airplanes were, of course, used for revenue flying. So the instructors who were assigned to do that um, would go to one of the small outstations um, in the system, wait for the last flight to come in. Um, the station crew would clean the airplane and put fuel on it, and then myself and two students would go fly for four and a half or five hours and make sure that we had it back in time for the first flight out that morning back to this thing, right. which meant I did a lot of time teaching and flying at night. Um, and people would say to me, well, yeah, it's hard for a couple of days, but you'll get used to it. And the fact of the matter was um, I didn't get used to it, nor did I want to get used to it. It was really, really hard um, to maintain that level of concentration required to be flying around at night and, you know, of course, a variety of weather. Uh, and to maintain what I felt like was a safe environment. And there was actually three times that I remember when I, somewhere in the middle of the flight, I would tell the students, I just can't go on. We're, I'll make this up to you tomorrow or the next night, but I am absolutely not able to focus enough um, attention on what's going on here. Well, and it's a good thing that you did. I mean, one of the things that the points that was made here was that, um, well, I think it's a, it would say aviators, whether you're in mm -hmm. uh, your mechanic or pilot, anybody you tempted to overcome challenges and just say, oh, I can push through We're all this. that way. Sure. But I love this question. If I'm too busy to stop, do I have time to do it over? Yeah. And there may not be a do over. Yeah. So good for you. Well, try to do the right thing. Um, <laughs> It's the difference between teaching all night in a simulator and teaching all night in an airplane. In a simulator, I was pretty sure I'd walk out of it. Yeah, so, in an airplane, maybe not. So, yeah. um, this is a this is a great article too about um, why do we do the wrong thing? Um, it's not because we're bad. It's just sometimes we make those decisions, and some of them are coming from mm, internal pressures. Well, some yeah. of them are coming from external pressures. So this article was not one we actually planned on. The author of this piece, who is in the FAST team on mm -hmm. the maintenance side and had looked at a lot of pieces, he, he really felt strongly that he wanted to sit down and say that 
you know, he, he's, he's got some quotations from this book that you see here. Um, he talks about errors and violations. And I think most of us think that um, if you intend to violate uh, something that that that's that's wrong and that somehow you're morally deficient and we tend to beat people up and he's not suggesting that willful you know if you go out knowing that you're going to break a rule and that you do something I, there there are some attitude issues that he kind of addresses here but he says it's not the violators necessarily the violators lack of character some are committed out of necessity or under pressure and that uh, violators are not criminals, um, that systemic pressures, and we all have, have felt them. Absolutely. They may influence good people to do the wrong thing. And so his main point in this article is we need to be teaching ourselves and managers how to recognize and control systemic pressures. It's kind of like on the pilot side with PAVE, external pressures. Well, gotta, they get their itis. Yeah. Um, I've got family waiting, um, all, all of the things that, that kind of force us to make some decisions, and which at the time we probably know are not the right decisions, but because it's worked before, maybe Whatever it will work it again. I mean, we could talk about this all night long. Um, but they, the, the four bullet points um, under the, um, the second one are interesting. Why does it happen? Um, expectation that rules might be bent in order to, you know, complete the, to. yeah, in order to get the work done. Um, you've got this attitude of, uh, I've got I can time, experience. I got this. I got it. Yeah, been here, done that. Um, maybe find shortcuts. And I mean, who hasn't looked for opportunities to do that? Um, it certainly is. I've, I've seen it in, you know, pilot reports. I've seen it in other mm -hmm. parts of aviation, um, sometimes poor advanced preparation. But you, you bring apart, you bring up, up the, the word attitude. And um, I used to, when I was teaching, um, especially captain classes, but I would I'd do it to new hire classes as well. Um, Whenever there's a, an event or an irregularity or an incident, something's not quite right, um, the safety department would immediately want to do a deep dive and drill down into find root cause. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a common thing, finding, doing root cause analysis. I mean, it happens on accidents, but even at the level of, um, gee, I, I crossed the whole short line by mistake and they, you know, I, the tower called and said a potential violation. So safety departments um, get into things like that and they want to do a root cause analysis. And it always brought up a discussion about intentional and non-intentional compliance. And I used to tell our, our crews that in, in my opinion, you can describe most things when it comes to non-compliance as either an ability or an attitude. Mm -hmm. And the example I would use, used to use was, if you can't land on the center line in a crosswind, well, that's really an ability issue. And that's what we're there in the training department to deal with is to help you land on the center line in a crosswind. Um, but, and, and I'm sure that nobody, you know, ever consciously said to themselves, you know, on a two mile final, Boy, I really hate my schedule this month. I think I'll just land on the right side of the runway today. I mean, I, I don't think anybody ever made those connections. 
Right. However, um, we've all probably have flown ugly, maybe unstabilized approaches, knowing that we should go around, mm -hmm. but we talk ourselves out of it. Um, this doesn't look so bad. I can do it before. I just saw my buddy do it. Um, I want to get home. I'm tired, whatever the reason. So we can talk ourselves into noncompliance. Mm -hmm. That's an attitude issue. And as a training provider, those are hard to deal with. The skill set things, that's what we're there for. The attitude issues are difficult, but it's important to discuss these things. And um, I think in either this article or maybe a subsequent one, there was the idea that, you know, once we teach somebody how to be an um, AMT, maybe we need a human factors course in just this topic. Yeah. Just like we teach you how to fly, maybe we need to teach you now how to lead, how to be PIC, go into the aeronautical decision-making parts of this. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting piece. And I, I think that, um, yeah, certainly there are people who try to do things to get away with them and I guess careless and reckless, but but uh, I mean, the, there's a lot of emphasis here uh, as well on some of the environmental factors sure. and well, what, and again, and that we we tend to call external pressures that can make people do things. But it starts with uh, some interesting stories, you know, and and you kind of get brought into the article and you start thinking to yourself, huh, what would I do? Sure. How would I handle this? It's easy to sit in your chair and say, well, I would never do that, but. If you really get into the story, maybe you think you realize that, well, maybe I would. Yeah. Um, and all these things are just things we have to learn from. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the ATIS part is the um, roundup. A few good stories in there. The one that I'm most familiar with is the hotspots in biology changing. Yep. Um, um, also, the um, more efficient descent procedures. I mean, that's something that um you can master through automation or you can do a little math in your head um but also the 10 million dollar grant half for the mechanics and i was going to say the the money for to, to develop mm -hmm. the next generation and also uh core there's there's a piece a little blurb in there about core courses for amts so it just reinforces the idea that continuous training is part of what it's all about indeed regardless of where you are um, and also with the advent of so much of the privatized manned space flight, just a change in the astronaut wings program. Uh, I read on there where if you've met the um, height requirement, I forget how many miles, 50, 60, I, I think forget. 60. Um, you get your name on a website. Um, and all that tells me is there's more of this to come. Absolutely. So don't forget, go back and get your wings credit. Um, download the print copy, take the test. And if you missed previous broadcasts and you're looking for WINGS credit, then you can also follow the link to the archived courses and take one of the previous ones. Very good. So, Susan, once again, it's been good to work with you and we'll look forward to the next version. And um, um, just want to uh, say hello and uh, thanks to our, our buddy, John Typen, who is the man behind the scenes. Uh, makes make, it all work. Make, making all this possible. Absolutely. We appreciate that. Yeah. So thanks, everybody, and have a, have a great evening. See you next time.